Romans chapter 9 this morning. We will wrap up that chapter, unless God surprises me. Romans chapter 9, after two weeks of relatively heavy lifting, right? After two weeks of chewing meat and digging deep, this morning's passage is relatively straightforward. Nice change of pace. But straightforward doesn't mean unimportant. On the contrary, what Paul has to say this morning, I think, is incredibly important. And I think it's important in and of itself. I also think it's important in as much as it's going to give us a lens through which to examine some of the events of the past week and hopefully see them a little more clearly, hopefully see them through our Father's eyes. Romans 9. Paul's been talking about Israel, right? The present state of Israel, the hard-heartedness of Israel, and he's not done. Chapters 10 and 11, he's going to have more to say about the spiritual condition of Israel and the future repentance, the coming revival of Israel. But when we get to the end of chapter 9, picking up where we left off in verse 30, Paul's wrapping up what he's been saying so far. He's finishing a thought. He's, he's, he's putting a, a period at the end of the comments that he's made thus far, and he's doing it by contrasting Israel and the church. Let's read our text, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness? Why? Answer, because they did not seek it by faith but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The Gentiles, Paul is saying, have historically not sought out righteousness. On the contrary, our track record is seeking after wickedness. From the time that God said, okay, you over here are the Jews and you guys over here are the Gentiles, from that time, Gentiles have been known for seeking out sin and evil and wickedness and drunkenness and revelry and idolatry of every kind. The Canaanites were Gentiles. And throughout the Old Testament, what do we see? Even as God is calling out Israel, calling out a people unto him, Canaanites are over there just wantonly pursuing everything that God hates. As God is saying to Israel, worship me and me alone, the Canaanites are determined to worship anything and everything except the true and loving God. It's who they've always been, Paul says. It's how we've always thought of them. It's what they've always been known for up until now. Now, Paul says, things have changed, haven't they? Now, if you look around, Gentiles are coming to God. Not on their own merit. Not based on their works. But through faith in Jesus Christ. Believing that his finished work on the cross paid the penalty for our sins. And made a way for us to be adopted into God's family. That's what God is doing among the Gentiles, Paul says. Meanwhile, Israel, Israel for the most part is on the outside looking in. Why? Because when Jesus came, 
Israel, especially Israel's leaders, said, we're good. Jesus comes in fulfillment of dozens of prophecies. Prophets spoke of the place of his birth, the time of his birth, the manner, his family. They prophesied about his preaching and his teaching and the healing and the miracles. Didn't matter. The priests, the elders, they said, no thanks, we're good. Jesus comes in fulfillment of dozens of prophecies. Jesus comes saying, I've come to bring life that you might have it more abundantly. And they said, eh, we like the life we've got. We like the righteousness we have. We keep the law. We worship at the temple that works for us. Except it didn't work for them. It couldn't work for them. For the law to save them, they'd have to do what? Keep it perfectly. Exactly. How likely was that? Yeah, not. (laughs) Paul's whole point in the first chapters of this letter, the purpose of the law was to prove no one could keep the law. Israel was the test case. God said, I'm going to call out a people. I'm going to give them every conceivable advantage. I'm going to give them personal revelation of the law. I'm going to place my presence in their midst, in the tabernacle, in the temple. I'm going to exhort them to holiness through prophet after prophet. Was it enough? Not even close. Even at their best, Israel fell short, right? And most of the time, they were nowhere close to their best. All of which should have prepared them for the Messiah. All of of which should have gotten them ready for the promised one, the anointed one, who would do for Israel what they could not do for themselves. Free them. Free them. Not from Rome, but from Satan and sin and death. Except Israel says no. Israel says no to forgiveness, says no to freedom, says no to friendship with God. Because when they rejected Jesus, they rejected all of that, right? Forgiveness, freedom, friendship with God. They rejected all of that in favor of what was familiar. And it went down exactly the way that Isaiah said that it would 700 years before it happened. They couldn't let go of their own pride. So today, today Paul's day, today our day, Paul says the gospel goes to the Gentiles. By believing on Jesus, by agreeing to let his death on the cross pay the price for our sin, we're saved out of this world, we're adopted by God, we inherit everlasting righteousness. It's where Israel stumbled. It's where they got tripped up. Righteousness, what righteousness? We got the commandments and the sacrifices and the feast and the temple. We got all the righteousness we need. We're full of righteousness. We're full of something. They were full of righteousness, but not God's righteousness. They were full of their own righteousness. They were full of self-righteousness. You can keep your freedom and your forgiveness and whatever the other F words were. We've got our own form of righteousness. We don't need a fresh work. We'll stick with what's familiar. Tipped my hand a little bit there, didn't I? Not going to lie, I've been bummed out this week. I've been bummed out this week because I look around and I see the church acting like the Pharisees. I see people in the body of Christ stumbling over things that are happening, rejecting them out of hand. 
unwilling to entertain the possibility that God might be, could be, maybe doing something new. Something different, something unfamiliar, maybe something, yes, uncomfortable. God's burdened me to talk about that this morning. But before I get into it, can I ask a favor? This is, this is me being Paul. I've been reading so much Paul, now I talk like him. I know this is what you're going to say, so can I say this in response to that? Can I ask a favor? Can I, will you hear me out this morning? Because you might think you know where I'm going, and you might even be right, but there's a possibility maybe, maybe I'll surprise you. My goal this morning isn't to attack anyone or anything. And my goal isn't to defend anything. My goal this morning is to look at how we look at things. At how ministries, how we look at ministries that aren't what we expect. That aren't what we're used to. That aren't business as usual. Three big stories in the news this week. Church news. And, and, and more than three things happening, obviously. But three things dominated my news feed. I'm guessing probably yours. The He Gets Us spots on the Super Bowl. The Maybe Revival at Asbury University. And the Jesus Revolution movie. None, none of which is what bummed me out. What bummed me out is for every story that I read about any of those three things that was hopeful or encouraging or even a little optimistic... It seemed like I saw three or four stories that were negative and discouraging and full of unbridled condemnation. And this is where I really hope you'll hear my heart and hear what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying. After service this afternoon, during the week, if, 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 you, want to, if you want to debate, I, I'd be happy to. But just know going in, I'm not... A Kool-Aid drinking, don't say anything bad because I think it's awesome, don't touch the Lord's anointed, 100% fanboy of any of it. I, I've got concerns about all three of those things. Reservations about he gets us in Asbury and even the Jesus Revolution, even though it's about our tribe. I, I got concerns about all of them. But what concerns me even more is the spirit within the church. Not our church, the church, big church, 21st century American church, the spirit that seems poised to strike at any time, to, to tear down anything that's not familiar, anything that's not the way that we would do it, anything that's not the way it's always been done. So Lord, as, 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 we, as we grapple with these things, would you minister a spirit of wisdom would you pour out grace and understanding? Lord, our heart is to pursue unity, not for the sake of unity, but unity in you. Unity in your truth, unity in your love. Lord, guide our conversation in your holy name. Amen. <clears throat> so the week began with the Super Bowl. Yeah, that was just a week ago. <laughs> and, and, right? Week began with the Super Bowl, and there were two ads that appeared, two, two spots, whatever you want to call them, that appeared during the Super Bowl. Part of a campaign that's been going on for a little while, and it's about Jesus. And the tagline of this campaign is, He gets us. 
One of the Super Bowl ads was a series of black and white photos of angry people mostly shouting at each other. Mostly protesters and counter-protesters. And there was a line of text over the last image. Jesus loved the people that we hate. He gets us. There was another ad that was a series of photos of children embracing one another. And the, the, the tagline was, Jesus didn't want us to always act like adults. He gets us. There's a whole series of ads like that. These, these are just two. Print ads, video ads. They're funded not entirely, but substantially by the, the family that owns Hobby Lobby. Other ads talk about Jesus mourned. Jesus lived in poverty. Jesus was a refugee. All of which, by the way, are true. I might, I, I might not have articulated things the way that they do. I might have not have expressed it the same way, and I probably wouldn't have used all of the same images, but what they're saying is rooted in biblical truth. Even so, and that being said, by Monday morning, my newsfeed was crammed with Christians talking about how horrible these people are. Because Jesus gets us isn't the gospel. In fact, it's a false gospel. And the people behind the ads are woke tricksters. That's a quote. Woke tricksters. Okay. They're, they're liberals and deconstructionists. They're contemptuous of the cross of Christ. The great apostasy is upon us. And all I could think was, slow down. <laughs> Take a deep breath. And this, this is one of those times... Don't hear what I'm not saying. I don't know if I love the ad campaign. I, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have spent the money that way. And if I had, I'm pretty sure I would have made different choices, different aesthetic choices, different choices around substance. But we don't get to attack the heart of people. We don't get to presume we know the heart of the people behind the campaign because it's a little weird to us because it's not how we would do it before we decide well this is clearly what they're going for this is clearly their heart this is plainly their intention we have to at least consider what they say about themselves we would want that wouldn't we and what they say is they're trying to challenge people who think they've made up their mind about Jesus to reconsider what it is they think they know. Somewhere along the line, this is one of the creators, somewhere along the line, people took the world's greatest love story and began regarding it as hate speech. And those who believe it as a hate group. So, so unless he's lying at least part of his heart, is to challenge people's perspectives about Jesus, to challenge the people who don't know Jesus or have made up their mind against Jesus to think again about Jesus. I don't know that I would do it that way, but I don't think the goal is bad. Is it the gospel? It is not. Is it evangelism? No. Is it a model for doing church? Absolutely not. It's preparing people for evangelism. It's getting people ready to hear the gospel and to maybe become part of the church, part of the body of Christ. Oh, but that's not their only agenda. That's not their real agenda. That's not all they're about, Pastor. Maybe, maybe not. 
And it's possible that there are people who know more about this than I do. But most of what I was reading wasn't based on behind-the-scenes knowledge or inside information. It was purely based on watching a 30-second ad or maybe scrolling through their website. Most of what I read seemed based on, that's not how we do it. I don't know everything. It's possible I'm missing something. I almost always am. But where I'm coming, where I'm coming from is not to say he gets us as good and true and noble and perfect in all of its ways and pure in its motivation. I don't know. It, there, it's, it's being done by people, so probably not, right? Because people are, are, you know. My point is, I don't think we need to immediately reflexively condemn something and label it unbiblical or heretical or dangerous because it's not what we were expecting because it's not what we would have done because it's not something else we wish it was. Full disclosure. i got to own my bias here. Full disclosure, 15 years ago, I did something, I was part of doing something pretty similar. The church I was serving at was, was, was deeply involved, deeply invested in radio ministry, and a wealthy businessman came to us and said, hey, you guys are Christian and you know radio. I want you to produce a series of spots to air on New York City, Manhattan, AM radio drive time when everybody is listening to hear what the delays are, the bridges and the tunnels, and figure out how they're going to get to work. Okay, what's your goal? I want to challenge people to open up a Bible and consider what it says. That's what, that's what his goal was. We talked to a bunch of stations. Most of them were a flat no right away. WABC, flagship station of the ABC radio network, said we'll air the spots on a couple conditions. You can't say the name Jesus, you can't quote the Bible, and you can't share the gospel. Which is similar, by the way, to the constraints that advertisers operate under putting ads together for the Super Bowl. People who said, why wouldn't they just air a a, a 30-second exposition of John 3.16 or just somebody reading John 3.16? The answer is every year someone tries and the Super Bowl always says no. Why Why didn't they present the Romans' road to salvation? Because every year there are people who put together sanctity of life ads, sanctity of marriage ads, and they get a hard no. The Super Bowl people don't want to offend anybody. They're, 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 they're wimpy that way. So WABC says no to, to, to all of the things they said no to. So what we ended up doing was a series of 30-second, really glorified sermon illustrations. Things like, you know, you've seen this one. That, that, this is $20. Do you want it? Yes? yes? Okay. But I, I just crumpled it up. Do you still want it? I just, I just stomped on it and, 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 I, and I ran it through the mud. Do you still want it? And the point is it doesn't lose its value no matter what I do to it. You and I are precious in God's eyes no matter what the world does to us. And at the end of, of these spots, the tagline would be, that's in the Bible. The Bible? Yeah, the Bible. There's more to it than you think. For more information, go to moretoit.com, where we had Bible resources and a church locator and a clear presentation of the gospel. And the hope was that people who had walked away from God, 
people who had never set foot in church, people who thought they'd made up their mind about Jesus and the Bible might be prompted to reconsider. Maybe I'm not sure that I know what I think I know. Maybe I don't believe everything I've been told. Was it the gospel? It was not. Was it evangelism? No. Forced me to put a label on it, I'd call it pre-evangelism. Breaking up the hard ground, the hard ground of hearts, so that when the seed falls, the word of God falls, parable of the four soils from last week, when the word of God falls, it might not bounce off and roll away. And it bore some fruit. The website got hits. Churches got phone calls. Few churches got visitors where people said, hey, I came here because. At least one person, one person we know for sure got saved. Was it worth the money invested? I don't know. What's the price of a soul these days? My point is, this wasn't flaky, woke liberals trying to water down the gospel to make it palatable for mass consumption. This was a Calvary Chapel ministry. A lot of you have met Carol Escaros. Me and Carol did the writing. My pastor did the, the speaking. Andy Dean, he spoke at, a, at a, a, a men's retreat that we did. Went on to be director of the Bible College. He's now a senior pastor. He managed the website. And it was different. But I don't think it was bad. Trying to prepare hearts that went in hardened against Jesus for future conversations about Jesus... I don't know. Seems like from the outside looking in, that's what he gets us is trying to do. I'm not in love. I've said that four times now. Make a note, second service, don't apologize so much. But I'm not in love with how they're, everything about how they're doing it. I like that they have Bible reading plans on their website. They have links to YouVersion and various Bible reading plans. I wish... On their website, they had a clear, concise articulation of the gospel. They don't. The whole thing puts me in mind of Luke chapter 9, the 49th and 50th. Disciples say to Jesus, hey, those guys over there were casting out demons in your name, and we told them to stop because they're not part of us. And Jesus says, why do you tell them to stop? Those who aren't against us are on our side. So that's how the week started. By the middle of the week, that story was eclipsed by another story. The possible revival happening at Asbury University in Kentucky. If you haven't heard about that one, something began on February 8th. And it started at an ordinary chapel service with one of the regular speakers and the usual students in attendance. And by all accounts, the, the, the usual speaker gave a not special message about repentance and invited students to come forward. Hey, if you have anything that you need to confess before the Lord, if there's something that you need to get right about, come forward and pray. Dozen or two came forward. And when the service ended and when, when the speaker dismissed everybody, most of them stayed. Some other people came forward. Some people who left came back. And it's still going. Today's day 12, I think that's right, of not 24-7, but early morning to late night worship and prayer and confession and devotion. Some people receiving salvation. Some people I respect have been there, have put eyes on it themselves, and, and what they say is that the worship is simple. It's not 
performance. It's, it's simple before the Lord, directed to the Lord. It's a piano, it's a guitar, it's a cappella sometimes. It's orderly. It's not weird, at least not yet. And, and, they're, and they're continuing to put priority on the students. The students get to come in first every morning because there's now a five-hour line to get in. But no guest speakers, no musicians, and an ongoing emphasis on confession and forgiveness. People who are there say the presence of God is tangible. The question that people are asking, is this the beginning of revival? And the response of many in the church is sadly predictable. No! Because they're doing it wrong. Revival is always accompanied by an emphasis on the written word of God, and we're not seeing that there. Asbury's already had revivals. That university had a revival in 1950 and 1970. God's not going to do it again. That's not how he works. Look at their website. And, and, and I'm not making this up. These are real things that people are publishing. Look at their website. The campus is woke. Their theo theology leans way to the left. That's not a place revival would happen. God doesn't like that. Really? It's, it's the last one that gets me especially. What does the Word of God say? Mark 2.17? Jesus, Jesus says those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That makes sense. You don't go to the doctor when you're healthy. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Based on that, I think a woke campus might be exactly where God begins a fresh work. Before we go further, let's, let's define our terms. Let's make sure we're on the same page talking about revival. Pe different people have different concepts of revival. Here's a definition I like. Revival seems to begin with a renewed love for God, an appreciation of God's holiness, a passion for his word and his church, a convicting awareness of personal and corporate sin, a spirit of brokenness and humility, and a desire for repentance and growth in righteousness. So far, so good. So far, what is being reported at Asbury in Kentucky lines up with that. But, but most would add that another hallmark of genuine revival is that it spreads from the church to the world, that it has an impact on society, that it affects the broader culture around it, that it bears lasting fruit. Based on that, and by the way, I agree with that. Based on that, I can get behind the people who are saying, slow down. Let's be careful with the R word. We don't know what this is yet. And I, th I think the people urging caution, including David Gusick, who had a really good video that he published on his YouTube channel yesterday, the people urging caution have a good point. I remember after September 11th, a similar marathon prayer, worship, confession, devotion thing happening at Union Square Park in New York. Candlelight vigil, vigil began spontaneously, I think, on September 12th. 
There were a number of churches that intentionally kept it going the next day, the day after that. But, but when people tried to wrap it up and say, okay, this is, this is run its course and we're going to devote our resources elsewhere, it, it persisted. It, 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 by then it had a life of its own. And for a time we started wondering, hoping, praying, God, is this, is this revival? Are you going to bring beauty for ashes? Because it wasn't, and it wasn't just in New York City. For, for, for several weeks, churches all over were packed. Adding services, adding more home groups, praying, maybe, 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 maybe. And then it petered out. Which in hindsight seems inevitable. Because all along the way, it really, at its foundation, was fueled by emotion. It was more of a reaction to the, to just the, the cataclysmic events of September 11th than it was an actual move of the Spirit. Which isn't to say that the Spirit didn't move. It just wasn't revival with a capital R. All of which to say, yeah, I agree, we don't know what's happening at Asbury yet. But is it okay to say something is happening and that, that, that it looks really good? Is it okay to be hopeful? Is it okay to, on the one hand, sit in a place of not knowing, but still be praying? Is it okay to be watching and waiting while resisting the urge to prejudge and condemn. Is it okay to be excited about what's happening without having to punctuate every other thing you say with a word of warning? I was talking to a pastor this week who said, I heard a girl interviewed from Asbury, and she was talking about what God was doing and how God was speaking, and she quoted a verse from Hosea completely out of context. So that tells me this cannot be a work of the Spirit. Oh, good heavens, I hope that isn't the test. Because <laughs> I have misquoted and misinterpreted and misunderstood and misapplied so many verses over the years, standing right here. I would hate to think that that means that Calvary Wichita is not a work of God's Spirit. Understand, I'm, I'm not defending or excusing carelessness or sloppiness with God's Word whether it's mine or anybody else's. I'm saying God can work in spite of our mistakes. God does work in spite of our mistakes. Our mistakes do not, cannot constrain him. And my question is, why are we so eager to constrain him? To put guardrails around him so he doesn't do anything, you know, weird. What is it that makes us so anxious to tell people and to tell God what he can and cannot do. God, you can do this over here. Do not do this over there. And if this happens over there, well, that's not God. Why, why, why are we so eager to arbitrate what is and isn't God? This is from him. This isn't from him. What makes us so stinking positive? Why do we feel like we need to be? Why did the Pharisees need to be sure? Go back to our text. What was going on in their hearts? Don't think too hard. Pride. Self-righteousness. I talked to a pastor friend this week. He said something really good. Oh, beware the beguiling allure of the theology of certainty. Yeah, he likes words. Josh Brindle, he actually spoke here like 10 years ago. He's since left the ministry to focus on his writing. He writes 
poetry, he writes fiction, he writes about faith. He likes words, but those are some good ones. The theology of certainty. Theology that tells us we're right. We have the proper insight. We've got it all figured out. We know how God moves. We know what he does and doesn't do. We are authorized to sit in judgment. Except the thing about a revival, by definition, it's God doing something different. Revival is God breaking into our day-to-day to to remind us of of what the not-yet of our salvation is going to be like and what the already of our salvation should be like, could be like if our hearts were fully surrendered to Him, if we humbled ourselves and prayed and sought His face and repented of our sin. Revival is the opposite of business as usual. It's always unexpected. It never happens the same way twice. Our tribe, you probably know this, was birthed during such a revival. Some call it the Fourth Great Awakening. Mostly people call it the Jesus Movement or the Jesus People Movement. The movie that Rob mentioned, The Jesus Revolution, offers a glimpse of the early days of that revival. It's our origin story, if it will, if you will. No radioactive spiders, just Jesus. Interesting, just as a side note, I mentioned before, Asbury has had revivals before in in 1950 and 1970. What was happening in in 1970? The Jesus Movement. We associate it with the left coast. Because we're Calvary and Calvary started in California, we think of the Jesus Movement as a California thing. It was actually much further reaching. There were pockets in and around Kentucky, pockets in the Midwest, pockets in the Pacific Northwest, pockets on the East Coast. So the Jesus Revolution is set in the early days of that revival. And and some have faulted it for that reason. We don't need a movie that makes a man out to be a hero. Because the movie focuses on Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee and, and the work that the Lord did through their partnership. We don't need to make... A man, a hero, whether it's Chuck or Lonnie or anybody else, the hero of the Jesus movement is Jesus. Amen. Amen. But but comments like that kind of reached a fervor, fever pitch this week after after an interview with Kelsey Grammer was circulated. Kelsey Grammer, Frazier from Cheers, Frazier from... Frazier. I like to think of him as Captain Morgan Bateson from Star Trek Next Generation because I'm a geek. (laughs) But he plays Chuck in the Jesus Revolution. And last week he gave an interview and he actually teared up talking about how moved he was, how privileged he felt getting to represent Chuck's ministry and honor his legacy. And there there was a chorus of response, we don't worship Chuck, we worship Jesus. Again, yes and amen. I could not agree more, but I think telling the story has a point. I think revisiting the history can have value. I think it can be a useful reminder, and in light of what's happening in Asbury, maybe a timely reminder, when God brings revival, we have a choice. Monty talked about the choice that we have, and and he didn't know what I was going to say, but but he opened service talking about how we have a choice. And when God brings revival, we have a choice to rejoice in it or reject it. 
God brings revival. That, that's a fact. Men, women, people, we cannot manufacture it. God brings it. That's the only way it happens. We can't script it. We can't engineer it. We can't summon it. We can't even counterfeit it for very long. Revival is a unique and profound and unmistakable sovereign work of God the Holy Spirit. It happens at places and times with people of God's choosing. And we can choose to reject it or rejoice in it. And it's a fact of church history. Every revival that comes along, every new move of God, every fresh work of the Holy Spirit finds its greatest opposition among those people who were most involved in the last revival, in the last move of God. Why? Because we were there. We remember. And this isn't how it happened. Israel returning to the land, rebuilding the temple. Oh, this isn't like the temple we used to have. From what I understand, and I haven't seen the movie, but from what I understand, Jesus' revolution captures that at least a little bit. It portrays, with, with decent accuracy, Chuck standing at that crossroad, facing that choice, rejoice or reject. Because Pastor Chuck, I don't know if you know, came out of the Foursquare Church. Foursquare was a church movement that was birthed in the last big revival before the Jesus movement, the Azusa Street Revival at the turn of the century. So Chuck had ideas he'd grown up with, concepts he'd had instilled in him by his tribe and its traditions about what holiness was supposed to look like and how God moves and doesn't move in people's lives. So as revival begins... And the Holy Spirit begins to move in a way that defied Pastor Chuck's expectations. He was presented with a choice. And it's a choice that I pray that we will be confronted with soon. Maybe we're already beginning to be confronted with. Reject or rejoice? Do we greet this fresh work of God with openness or opposition? And I, and I, and I really am a victim of Paul's writing here. I know what you're going to say, and let me say this to that. The question of whether to respond with openness or opposition is a question. It's not a given. It's not an an assumption. I'm not not suggesting we be so open-minded that our brains fall out. Seriously, the Bible is real clear about false teachers and false teaching. And I'm in no way suggesting that we ignore that. I'm not saying that we scratch 1 Thessalonians 5.12 out of our Bible and stop testing all things. I am not saying we should stop being Bereans. Stop receiving the word with all readiness of mind. Stop searching the scriptures daily to prove whether these things be so. But but notice how Luke says what he says in in, in, in Acts 17.11. He doesn't say that they were searching the scriptures, trying to find a reason to prove that Paul was wrong and that his words weren't so and that he was a blasphemer and a heretic. No, they were fair-minded, Luke says. Some translations say noble or noble-minded. Fair-minded is a better translation. They weren't looking for an excuse to disbelieve. They weren't looking for an excuse to disqualify what was happening out of hand. They wanted to know what was true, what was right, what was good, what was godly. Is that 
us. I, th I think we would do well to ask the Holy Spirit to search us. Show us what's true in our hearts. When our first reflex to something new is reflexive opposition, I think we would do well to notice that and say, God, what's going on? What am I reacting to here? Is it style or is it substance? Is it contrary to your tradition or does this, to, to your truth rather, or does it just war a little bit with my tradition? And am I responding as someone who's serving the Lord, daily seeking a fresh filling? of the Holy Spirit, stepping out in dependency on that Holy Spirit? Or am I sitting on the sidelines critiquing how others are serving the Lord? I'm reminded of the Dwight Moody quote. Dwight Moody, 19th century pastor and evangelist, responding to a critic, said, it's clear you don't like my way of doing evangelism and you raise some good points. Sometimes I don't like my way of doing evangelism. But I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. <laughs> Mic drop. Rejection or rejoicing? Openness or opposition? Pastor Chuck stood at that crossroads. And in truth, his uncertainty ran deeper than I'm told the movie portrays. I haven't seen it. Anna Michaela saw an early cut. They said that there was still editing going on. But the version that they saw, saw Chuck feeling immediately called by God to go after the hippies and to wade into this, to this new work and his wife Kay wringing her hands and saying, well, I don't know, Chuck. The reality, and Chuck often spoke of this, the reality was it was actually the opposite. Chuck was the one wringing his hands. Chuck was the one who wasn't sure. Kay was the one urging him again and again. She was the one whose, whose heart the Lord softened, which is usually the way it works, right, guys? <laughs> it's unfortunate if that doesn't get corrected in the final edits because I think it's so important to see that that's normal and human maybe for pastors especially, to struggle to let go of what's normal. They have a hard time loosening our grip on familiar and usual. But it's glorious when we do. That's a Chuck word. Oh, it's glorious. <laughs> because then we have the privilege of seeing God move up close and personal in a way that he doesn't every day. Ultimately, of course, Chuck got it. When he bought in, he bought in all the way. And when the hippies came into the church from the beach with their feet dirty and oily and crusted with sand and the elders complained, they're ruining the brand new carpeting, Chuck said, well, then tear up the carpeting because we're not telling them to leave. And when some of the old guard complained, Pastor Chuck, they're disrespecting God. They're chewing gum in the sanctuaries. Pastor Chuck said, I think you've got it wrong. The sanctuaries are chewing the gum. I don't know if either story is in the movie. I hope they are. But if they are or they aren't, please understand, it's not a credit to Chuck or Kay. It's a credit to God the Holy Spirit changing Chuck's heart the way he wants to change our heart. Whether Asbury proves to be revival or not, whether Jesus' revolution the movie has an impact or closes the first week it opens, whether he gets us, gets bigger or fails, we're praying for revival regardless, aren't we? And we know our, our nation is ripe for judgment. I don't think anyone here is confused about that. 
It was more than, more than 50 years ago that Billy Graham said, if God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> 50 years ago. Think about what's happened since then. We're ripe for judgment. We're praying for revival. And if revival comes, and we can't be sure that it will, but if it does, when it does, ministry is going to look different. Ministry will look different because that's what happens in revival. We can't sure, be sure what's going to be different, how it's going to be different, but it's going to be different. Music will likely, likely be really different. One of the most revolutionary things about the Jesus Revolution was the upheaval in praise music. And the response was, that can't be the work of the Spirit. Look, they're playing guitar <laughs> in 4-4 four, four time. That's the devil's time signature. <laughs> we might be put in the position of asking, how is that worship? There isn't a single guitar on stage and they didn't do even one Chris Tomlin song. <laughs> Can't be a work of the Spirit. Method of worship might be different. The place of worship might be different. Serving at the fellowship in New Jersey, we hear all the time from, from people who grew up in traditional church, well, Calvary isn't a real church. Look, they meet in a warehouse. Churches, you know, have steeples. And, and crosses, and they have signs with bad puns on the front lawn. <laughs> Method of worship might be different. Place of worship might be different. It might be then the next revival, someone actually cracks the code uh, around doing church without walls. I don't know. The mission field might be different. Can't be work of the Spirit, they told Chuck. God doesn't want the hippies. They don't bathe. They have sex all over the place. They take drugs, and they're always protesting something. A lot of pastors I know wonder if the next revival might directly engage the LBGTQ community because they are the least evangelized demographic in our country. It is a group that the church has largely written off. It is a group comprised of people, of souls that Jesus died for, maybe. I'm speculating, obviously. But this I'm sure about. History tells us that revival fades. And church movements that arise from revival fade. Over time, they diminish in, in passion and in power, usually within 50 years. The high point of the Jesus movement, the most dramatic, intense, revolutionary time, that time you'd make a movie about, happened 53 years ago. It's not to say that God can't continue to use Calvary. He can. He is. I pray He will. But we all know that yesterday's radicals turned into today's Republicans, right? <laughs> yesterday's Jesus revolutionaries can become tomorrow's resistance. Stubborn old fuddy-duddies stumbling over our own righteousness, telling the next generation, that's not revival. That's not Jesus' music. That's not how to evangelize. That's not who God wants saved. We ought to know we're Jesus' people. Get off my lawn. And we, we, we can tell ourselves it won't happen, but it will. You might not think so, but I guarantee it will. If we're not actively, daily pursuing revival in our own lives. One thing that people have said about Asbury that I absolutely agree with, you don't have to go there to have a revival experience. People are flocking to Kentucky. There's, yesterday was a five-hour line. Who knows what it'll be today? And I got no doubt it's awesome. <laughs> I also have no doubt it's unnecessary. 
You've, you've heard the, the exhortation, I'm sure. If you want to experience revival, draw a circle on the ground, stand yourself in that circle, and pray that God would bring revival to everyone in the circle. If that's not us, if we're not daily seeking revival in our own hearts, if we're not weekly at least looking around this room and praying for God to revive this fellowship, we're probably coasting. Probably letting habit and tradition sit in the space where the Holy Spirit ought to be. And when revival comes, if it comes, instead of being open and excited, we're going to be scared and threatened. Humility is still the, kingdom, the, the, the currency of the kingdom family. Pharisees lost sight of that. And they lost opportunity because of that. If we think we've outgrown dependency on the Spirit, if we think we've arrived, that we're the enlightened ones, we know how this works, we've got what we need, if you want to know how Jesus rolls, just look at us, then we will be on the outside looking in during the next Jesus revolution because we'll be too busy being threatened by it or condescending toward it or dismissive of it to be a part of it. Jesus, would you revive everyone in the circle? How do we know if he is? We're humbling ourselves and praying and seeking his face and repenting of sin. And we're not afraid of loving people too much. Jesus never told us to be afraid of loving people too much. How do we know if we're, we're being revived? See if God will, will anoint us to love before we judge. To listen before we speak. To, to pull out the plank in our eye before we call out the speck in anybody else's. And we'd pray before we start proclaiming all about what's right. If we do that, we might, people, we might be people whose eyes God can open, whose heart God can soften, and we might just find ourselves again in the middle of something amazing. Holy Spirit, we ask, would you, by your grace, in your mercy, for your glory, bring revival we do not deserve it, and it's a good thing that revival isn't about that. Revival is from you, and it's for you. Just as the gifts of the Spirit are not for we ourselves, but rather for the body of Christ, revival is for the church and for the world and for your namesake. Would you breathe on us, Holy Spirit? Would you stir up once more before Jesus returns? Would you stir up once more a dramatic work, a powerful work, a saving work that would sweep across the land and rescue many souls from Satan's clutches? We ask in your merciful name.